Hey, Amanda, you're an Arizona native, aren't you? I mean, essentially. I was born in California, but our first day in Arizona was my second birthday. That's March 8th. So I feel like that counts. Mm, I see how you're slipping your birthday in there. Uh, if people <laughs> want to send cards next March. <laughs> that being said, though, I'm guessing you think you know a lot about our state. Um, Kaylee, I do know a lot about our state. We are called the Valentine State because our statehood is on February 14th. The London Bridge from the song is here in Arizona. And the saguaro only grows in our state, which is actually a fact I learned from you. Okay, okay. That's, yeah, you're a little Arizona factoid machine. But what if I told you that there are more oddities, shall we say, to our state than you or our listeners might realize? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. After working with you for like, what, six years now, Kaylee, I feel like I've discovered you have a knack for digging up the unexpected. Something I take pride in. <laughs> well, in this episode of Valley 101, I'm taking you and our audience on a journey of Arizona oddities. see how many of them you might already know. I'm Kaylee Monahan, And I'm Amanda Luberto. And you're listening to Valley 101 for the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Okay, first up, let's talk food. Fast food specifically. What's your favorite fast food chain, Amanda? Huh, I don't eat a ton of fast food. I have a lot of food allergies and it doesn't really leave me in a good spot with fast food, but I love the spicy chicken nuggets at Wendy's, to be honest. Ooh, <laughs> gosh, I haven't had those in forever. Did you ever grow up getting the Wendy's chocolate frosty and dipping your french fries in them? Of course, that's the best part. <laughs> What about you, Kaylee? Well, I'm a diehard fan of Chick-fil-A. I can't get enough of their waffle fries. And when they finally left the mall food court and started doing standalone operations like the one near our office, I was thrilled. <laughs> yeah, you love Chick-fil-A. The Chick-fil-A sauce, pretty good. You can put it on pretty much anything. It's really solid. You can buy it now in the grocery store as well. Like, it's in the ketchup aisle. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also a dedicated In-N-Out Burger girl, and I think I attributed that to my also California roots. Half my family lives in California, so I spent my summers out there, and In-N-Out was always a big deal as a kid. I like a menu with few options. I think it's a great business strategy that they have. <laughs> But none of those are from Arizona specifically. So what does that have to do with our state and today's episode? <laughs> well, these fast food joints we talked about, nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> but the proverbial king of fast food, and no, not Burger King, has a first right here in Arizona 
Drum roll, please. The first McDonald's drive-thru is right here in Arizona. What? I thought you were going to tell me about the Sedona Teal Arches that is so popular, but the first drive-thru is here? That doesn't sound right. I know. And like, yes, the Teal Arches are definitely memorable. I think there are plenty of people who actually go up to Sedona just to see them. But no, this drive-thru is something else. The reason for it actually goes back to some interesting McDonald's lore. So to get the scoop, I spoke with Adam Chandler, and he's like probably the most knowledgeable guy out there on fast food. Yeah, I'm looking at his credentials here. He's a journalist, an author, and a former bartender based in New York. His work has appeared on, let me get this straight, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Wired, Fox, Slate, New York Magazine, Texas Monthly, Esquire, Time, and that is not even the rest of them. How did you find this guy? (laughs) Well, you know, I have my sources. (laughs) Actually, Adam is the author of a book called Drive Through Dreams, A Journey Through the Heart of America's Fast Food Kingdom, and he very kindly made some time to chat with me remotely. And we started by first laying out the history of drive throughs Well, like anything in food history or even mainstream history, the advent of the drive through is a heavily contested thing. A lot of different restaurants and individuals claim to have invented it. There's a place called Red's Hamburger in uh, Missouri that is credited with being the first drive through But there are people who argue that that's not the case. All of which is to say, I think that we have to give the American West credit for making drive-thrus a thing, in part because they were the result of car culture and the building of the highways after World War II. So In-N-Out Burger, for example, had a drive-thru only operation when it started. So there was no place where you could go inside and eat. There were no tables. You just got your food through the drive-thru and go. And they had a two-way speaker. That is the way that we now communicate mostly with drive-thrus. And so they patented that in 1948. So I give it to them because they created what we now know as the drive-thru as opposed to just an open window where someone gives their orders or hands out the food. But this was a post-war innovation, and it wasn't adopted that quickly. It, It took some time for different companies to kind of see the potential in it, because Dining on the go wasn't popular. It wasn't really the way that Americans ate back then. There was kind of a resistance to it. Adam says that America's now famous fast food culture didn't really gather steam until after World War II. And that's in large part due to many Americans now having some disposable income. Prior to that, there was a dining culture, but it mostly geared toward fancier diners with bigger bankrolls, as opposed to what middle-class families would eat. 
And so dining at home was really still a cherished custom. This boy and girl coming home from school look quite content with life. And why not? They're looking forward to an important date, dinner at home with the family. It was part of the culture in a way that would eventually change as the suburbs began to grow. People were living farther from where they worked. And the rise of two-income households sort of reared its head as a cultural phenomenon that made it so that dining on the go was more important to consumers. What about the drive-up, like Sonics, where people come out on roller skates, or maybe not so much these days? Was this happening around the same time? Did they influence each other, or were they kind of separate concepts? What's interesting about the relationship between drive throughs and drive-up places is that drive throughs were meant to fix a problem that drive-ins had, which was that you didn't make a lot of money in the way that you could if you had a, a drive through or a fast food restaurant. The thing about drive-ins is that they weren't terribly efficient. You lost a lot of time and energy when you had younger servers and younger clientele. And what fast food is really looking for was to capitalize on families that were trying to dine quickly and cheaply. And that was really what inspired things like the drive through window was the idea that time was precious and that you needed to be able to serve people quickly and that it was more profitable to do so. So fast food got rid of the wait staff. They got rid of dishes and cups that you had to wash. Everything was disposable. So it created this whole new way of dining that previously didn't exist. And that is really one of the big innovations. And the drive-thru is a big part of that. Dining on the go became popular because you needed things that were disposable, that you could eat while you were steering a car, handheld items. And that was sort of the motivation for creating fast food in general. And the drive through was an upshot of that. Welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order? Big Mac value pack. Make it two, please. Hey, what's that? It's their new value pack. See? It's the Colonel's Extra Crispy What a Meal. If you love Extra Crispy, As for McDonald's, it came late to the drive through game. The reason why McDonald's seemed resistant to drive throughs was a lot about control and consistency. This is one big feature of McDonald's and all fast food companies is that whether it's good or bad, you know that it's going to taste the same wherever you go. And so anything that disrupts that, any new innovation, any new product that gets introduced, any new piece of equipment that slows things down, really has to be factored in this equation. What's interesting about the first drive-through at Fort Huachuca in Arizona is that 
you have this moment where a company, McDonald's, which had been resistant to opening drive-throughs, decided to do it. And this was 1975. The drive-throughs had been around for a while. They'd been around for nearly 30 years. But Ray Kroc, who ran McDonald's kind of with an iron fist, wasn't so interested in the drive-through concept. He was open to it, but there really wasn't a movement for him to do it. He didn't see it as the best opportunity. And he didn't want all these stores to necessarily undergo this expensive remodeling to make it part of their business model. Ultimately, what forced his hand was a policy of the U.S. Army, which forbade enlisted military people in uniform from leaving their cars to get food. They thought it was a risk to them. There's always a really interesting method to the madness in fast food, and drive-throughs became this other component of that. And now it's 70% of the business that fast food restaurants tend to do is through the drive through window. So it really flipped at one point. It stopped being a place where people would dine in or grab the food and go home. They would go through the drive through And that is kind of how we got to the drive through at Fort Huachuca was essentially the need for one business to stay profitable against external forces that were causing the business to need to change. There's one more tangential fast food story sort of related to our region, and it comes by way of Kentucky and Utah. One of the unsung heroes of the Kentucky Fried Chicken dynasty is a guy named Pete Harmon. And he and Colonel Sanders, who everyone knows, met at a restaurant conference in Chicago. And the two of them hit it off because Colonel Sanders had given up drinking. And Pete Harmon, being from Utah, was Mormon and did not drink also. So the two of them bonded because I think everyone else at this restaurant conference was out having a rollicking good time in Chicago and drinking a lot. So the two of them became friends and he learned about Colonel Sanders chicken, which was becoming famous at the time. And Pete Harmon owned stores all around the Southwest, including Arizona. But before all that happened, Pete Harmon decided he would market Kentucky Fried Chicken. And what he did was, first of all, he came up with the idea of calling it Kentucky Fried Chicken, which is huge. Colonel Sanders just had a recipe, but what Pete Harmon saw was the opportunity to market the name Kentucky Fried Chicken as something exotic and different and interesting. One day, Colonel Sanders arrives in Salt Lake City to visit Pete Harmon, and he sees that he's selling fried chicken under the Colonel Sanders image with the name Kentucky Fried Chicken, which previously didn't exist. And Pete Harmon gets the okay to sell this product under this name. And he comes up with the tagline, finger looking good, as a way to describe the product as being obviously delicious and possibly addictive. Come on, doesn't she deserve a break? Take her out to dinner at home with convenient, delicious Colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken. Made from the Colonel's secret recipe of 11 herbs and spices. It's the best-tasting chicken you ever ate. 
and the best way to say thank you to your busy wife. Enjoy Sunday dinner tonight at your house. Colonel Sanders fixes Sunday dinner seven days a week, and it's finger-licking good. Wow, I had no idea about any of this. I mean, fast food always seemed inextricably tied to the automobile, which makes sense here in Arizona. So I figured, like, fast food and drive throughs were always tied together. And that KFC nugget, see see what I did there? <laughs> also super interesting. And, but I'm also now very hungry. Thanks, Kaylee. Well, why don't you make yourself some popcorn? It'll be the perfect snack for our next Arizona oddity. Oh, you know me. I love popcorn. Okay, are you all settled in, comfy, got your popcorn in your drink? Yes. If I make popcorn at home, I always put garlic salt on it. That's the key to good at-home popcorn, so mm. I'm very happy. <laughs> and it smells so good. Can I have some? Okay, only after you tell me this next oddity. So now I've got some high expectations. Okay, let's see if I could blow your mind again. Setting the scene for you. It's high noon. A dusty road cuts through the middle of a town. And down that road, at the end is a small church. Its bell chimes twelve times. Cowboys have hitched their horses to some posts outside a saloon. Canteen girls welcome them in, and a piano is being jauntily played inside. All of a sudden you hear and you realize there's cameras all around and boom mics and you're on a set and they're filming a western. I mean this is no surprise. I feel like I already know this. A ton of westerns were shot here over the years, especially on the outskirts. Yes, but would you be surprised if I told you that this was set smack dab in the middle of Phoenix? Wait, what? Are you serious? Like the whole western town right in the middle of Phoenix? That This sounds like a prank. Nope, not a prank. This is Kudia City, and the year is 1938. And for this historical gem, I turn to Phoenix historian Steve Schumacher. Kudia City was a fully contained Western movie set. 
that was the core of it. The guy that built it in the first place, Salvatore Cudia, he had a lot of background before he came to Phoenix. He had done some studio work in Florida, some in California. He was a sculptor. He was a painter. He was a voice coach. He was a movie director. He was all over the place. And then, of course, as a lot of people did, he saw the open air and uh, for Phoenix in the late 30s, came here and uh, built this studio. A lot like old Tucson, Apache Land, various ones like that. He built this movie studio with the plans of filming, directing, producing his own Western movies. So in 1939, he actually had it built and opened its doors. His initial plan was to film 12 movies, and unfortunately, World War II interrupted all that, so he was only able to do four to start off with. The studio was built where 40th Street and Camelback Road now meet. He had a passion for silent movies, and Quite honestly, in Italy, in Europe in those days, there wasn't a lot of production of movies going on. And that became his passion. He really wanted to make movies. So obviously, he had to come to the United States to do that and California specifically. And then he started his own here in Arizona. So I think it was really his passion to make movies that brought him to the United States because that just wasn't going to happen for him in Italy. Steve says that Mr. Cudia did a handful of movies and TV shows. He had great success with a TV series about Arizona Rangers called 26 Men, with nearly 80 episodes completed. This is the story of 26 men who rode the Arizona Territory. I is the glory of 26 men whose courage helped to build the territory. 26 men... Audiences can catch glimpses of Camelback Mountain, Pabago Park, Praying Monk, and many, many saguaros in that show. 26 men, carefully chosen for their courage and ability, formed the Arizona Rangers. Fame and public acclaim was not their objective. This is perhaps why the story of these 26 men has never been told until now. Yes, sir. I'm Cole, Jeremiah Cole. You're one of the ranchers that's been having wrestler trouble. That's right. We're still investigating, Mr. Cole. The way the wrestlers operate, cutting five or six head out at a time so they make a fast getaway, makes it hard to track them down. Well, you can cancel your investigation, Captain, because I know who the wrestlers are. At least one of them. As for movies, the most memorable are the Red Rider series, which began as a comic strip. The name Red Rider might bring up memories of a young kid who really, really wanted a Red Rider BB gun. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. And just who is Red Ryder? You can't show me a law in any law book that says you can dispossess a man on 10 days' notice. I ain't gonna show you nothing. 
Besides, this ain't none of your business, Ryder. It's a lot of my business. There's an awfully sick boy inside that house. Any unlawful attempt... What do you mean, unlawful? Do you see that badge? That's the law around here. Anybody don't get off, Coonskin. It's gonna get moved off. He's a fictional man of justice living on Painted Valley Ranch in the 1890s. He rode a horse named Thunder, and he lived with his aunt, called the Duchess, and he had a young Native American sidekick by the name of Little Beaver. Along with Red's girlfriend, Beth Wilder, the heroes would battle bad guys and save the day, all in a Western setting. Well, 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 my dear Duchess, I'm delighted to see you. And you too, Red. I was particularly anxious to have you christen my new stage line with the best champagne Elkhorn could afford. Gosh almighty, Bill, carrying on like that, you're letting yourself in for a lot of overhead. <laughs> you will have your little joke. There we are. Well, here's what we have to say goodbye, Dickie. Gosh, Mr. Ryder. As for the Red Ryder franchise, there were 27 or 28 movies made. And that's depending on who your source is. And the hero himself was played by a variety of actors over time. That included Wild Bill Elliott and Alan Rocky Lane, both of whom are legends of cowboy B-rated movies. As he started becoming more and more successful with these TV shows and these westerns, of course, Phoenix was growing all around him. When he first built Kudia Studios, it was about eight miles out of town. And so that was not a problem. But as development started and, of course, Sky Harbor and airplanes started flying over and they'd be filming a western, there'd be an airplane go by or there'd be the sound of automobiles and cars honking on 40th Street or Camelback or something. So it was getting a little bit frustrating and they kept running up against that. And so a couple of the people that were involved in the productions, they got tired of fighting that. So a couple of them broke off from Kudia Studios and started their own out around Apache Junction. It was called Apache Land. It was a pretty successful studio, and if it hadn't been for Kudia Studios and all the problems with planes and cars and so forth, that may have not happened or may have just happened in a different way. And Columbia Studios, right about the time he opened in the late 30s, early 40s, came to him and said, we would like to film all kinds of movies here, but we need to make some modifications to the sets and the buildings. And he wasn't willing to do that. And so Columbia Studios ended up going to Tucson and they put together Old Tucson, which is probably the best known Western location in Arizona. Even though Kudia Studios came and went, it really gave birth to both Apache Land and Old Tucson. The studios finally closed down in the early 1960s when Mr. Kudia decided to retire.
The only thing that says there was a studio there is there's a concrete bridge that goes over the canal on 40th Street, and there's a bronze plaque there in honor of Cudia City. But that, as far as I can tell, is the only piece of anything that says there was a movie studio there. Wow, so I knew Arizona had some movies in its history, but I had no idea this place even existed. Neither did I, to be honest, at least before I started digging around for this episode. But I love that it was here, and I love that Arizona has such a rich movie history. And side note, I'm hoping to see a revival of that in some fashion. Now we got that state tax credit for filmmakers. Hello, Hollywood. We're right next door. <laughs> yeah, hopefully we can stop using New Mexico as a stand-in for, for Phoenix. <laughs> All right, so that is two oddities so far, but... You promised me three. So what's the third one? Okay. So this one is actually based on a question that I get asked a lot, and maybe you've been asked a lot, and any Arizonan has been asked a lot. At least for me, I never really knew the actual answer to this question. And it is, why don't we participate in daylight savings time? Or saving time, depending on if you want to be correct about it. I mean, I was always told that daylight saving was for farmers, which makes sense. We have a deep agricultural history here in Arizona, but then also not really. So I guess maybe I don't know why Arizona doesn't participate. <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is that we did at one point, a few times, actually. I'm going to let ASU history professor Calvin Schumerhorn explain. So if we go way back in history to 1883, the railroad companies standardized time across the United States. And they did that because if you set your watch by the sun, and how else would you set it in the 19th century, you're going to get different times in different places. But if you need a railroad schedule that has the same time in two places, you're going to run into conflict. And that was apparent in railroad crashes. In 1883, when the first time zones were invented, Arizona was actually split between mountain and Pacific. So that worked then, but it wasn't until 1918 that the United States started to legislate daylight saving time. They did this for a couple of different reasons. There was a war on, and it was actually the Germans who came up with daylight saving time, we think, and instituted it. And that wasn't the reason the U.S. did it. It was because of wartime concerns about fuel savings. Calvin says in the early half of the 20th century, much of the U.S. population lived in the northern parts of the country. And for them, extending the day by adding an hour in the summertime meant that people and businesses could save on energy costs. This was a time when a lot of people were burning fuels for energy. But conserving energy wasn't really the main impetus for adopting daylight saving time. 
This was actually led by a group of business people led by the uh, Boston department store chain owner, Lincoln Filene. And Filene and his buddies thought if there's more daytime on the clock, more people will come out and retail shop. They also wanted more time for golf. And so this didn't actually result in any permanent changes. The U.S. did have a temporary daylight saving time during World War I. They did it again during World War II, but it took until 1966 for Congress to pass the Uniform Time Act of 1966. Up to this point, local jurisdictions managed when they would spring forward or fall back. However, the Uniform Time Act had a small clause that Arizona eventually took advantage of. If you didn't want to do daylight saving time, your state legislatures could act and opt out. Arizona did try to join the club of daylight saving time in 1967, but citizens found more to dislike about adding an hour to their summers. As the Republic reported then, even as people were anticipating daylight saving time, they had a lot of hesitations. People at, uh, who are interested in college football said, this is a bad idea. This will affect attendance at the ASU and Arizona football games because they'll have to start later because the temperature will be too hot to play on the field. And then once daylight savings started, people started to complain. They complained that the children's grades dropped. They complained that it was too hot to work outside. People were complaining about the temperatures at the cotton gin. There was a lot of cotton you know, industry back then. There were all sorts of complaints, but they usually unfolded along industry lines. So drive-in movie theaters did not like it. Our restaurant tours did not like it. Now, who cares about drive-in theaters today, right? We just don't go to them. We have Netflix and stuff. But back then, if you had more hours of active daylight, fewer people are going to go to the movies or they're not going to go as late. The same thing with restaurants. If your day is extended, the daylight's extended, the restaurant tours feared that fewer people are going to show up for dinner because it's not going to feel like dinner time yet. If you ran outdoor activities, like a golf course, they were happy for daylight saving time because that's another hour that they could have in the golf participation. Also, if you're a business that links to the East Coast or the West Coast, say Los Angeles or New York, daylight saving time participation was good because you didn't have to go back and forth the way we do now, having to explain to someone on the East or West Coast why we are either on this time or that time. The Arizona Republic and other state media reported many and major complaints from Arizonans who found daylight savings to be a burden. This became the big issue in the summer of 1967. It was a relatively cool spring, but as summer got going, people complained about the extra expense of cooling their houses. And so the reason why daylight saving time worked in the East was reversed in the South, it was reversed in the West, because instead of saving fuel by having the extra hour of daylight so you don't have to heat your house as much, you spent more fuel, right, on air conditioning. The schools have to spend more on air conditioning. The same with businesses. 
But a study that came out a little bit before the pandemic estimated that not participating in daylight saving time saves the average Arizona at about 50 kilowatt hours a year. So there is a measurable advantage of not participating in daylight saving time. The problem for Arizona in the context of the rest of the country now is that the rest of the country is moving toward permanent daylight saving time. And the 2021 Sunshine Protection Act would put the nation on permanent daylight saving time. But because the the people who crafted that legislation kind of understand where we are at, we hope at least, there's a little clause saying that if the legislature has already authorized permanent standard time, we'll stay on permanent standard time. So if the Sunshine Protection Act passes Congress, um, 19 states have already had legislation in place that will put them on permanent daylight saving time. Arizona doesn't have to act. We'll just stay on standard time. Of course, not all of Arizona is on permanent standard time. The Navajo Nation in the northeastern part of the state does participate. But then there is a spot within the nation where things can get confusing. The Navajo Nation met after Arizona decided to stay on standard time and decided that they would continue to participate in daylight saving time because the Navajo Nation crosses borders and most of the Navajo Nation lies outside of Arizona. And so when you're thinking about the Capitol and Window Rock, that's not here. And so they said, well, we're gonna go with Colorado and New Mexico, etc." But that created a, a phenomenon that's referred to as the hole in the donut. So if you can visualize the, the Navajo Nation and in the kind of the northern part of Arizona in the east, inside the, the boundaries of the Navajo Nation is the Hopi Nation. And the Hopi Nation followed Arizona and does not participate in daylight saving time, right? So if you are taking a kind of a circuitous route around northeastern Arizona, you're going to go from standard to daylight to standard, back to daylight, back to standard. So it could be pretty confusing if you want to know what time is it. On top of that, the federal authorities follow the local Phoenix jurisdiction. And so if you ask a federal officer inside the Navajo Nation what time it is, they might have to give you two answers. You know, one's the official answer and one's the local answer. goodness. It can never be simple here in Arizona if we know anything. But this was so much fun. I actually did learn quite a lot. Yeah, and I had so much fun exploring these unusual Arizona facts. And there's so much more out there. So I plan to do some follow-up episodes like this one just throughout the year. I love it. Great idea. I'm definitely on board to be taught some more facts if you ever want to have me back. And listeners, this is where you can jump in as well. Do you know of any strange or forgotten stories about Phoenix or Arizona at large? Any little tidbits you may have heard on the playground growing up and now as an adult, you're like, is that true? 
send them to us and we will find out for you. So let us know by visiting valley101.azcentral.com. Yes, please share. The more odd, the better. Next week. I will go ahead and put my career on the line here, and I would argue that Megalodon, even though everybody loves to talk about it, there's movies about it now, probably academically a boring shark. (laughs) I like my sharks to be weird and wonderful. There are sharks that, at least especially around Arizona, you know, these things will have like spines coming out of the face. There are some with whorls of teeth that are even could be even more massive than Megalodon. We head into deep waters of Arizona's past to discover if Megalodon called our state home. I'd like to thank my fellow producer Amanda Luberto for joining me in this episode. If you want to know what stories she's working on, follow her on Twitter and threads at Amanda Luberto. You can follow me at Kaylee Monahan. This episode of Valley 101 was produced and edited by me, with help from Amanda Luberto and oversight by our news director, Kathy Tulamello. Our theme song and other musical scoring comes from Universal Production Music. If you liked this episode, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It really helps us reach more listeners like you. Also, we encourage sharing this show with your friends. Lastly, you can follow all our podcasts on social media at AZC Podcast. I'm producer Kaylee Monahan. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>